Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A surprise visit to Ukraine by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. As we enter the first full week of the Ontario election campaign, has any leader impressed you? There's a call for political leaders to make kids' health a priority. We have details on the Salvation Army Hope Run. A new report says cash is not dead. And have you ever wanted to enroll in an apocalypse prep school? Well, now you can. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It is clear that Vladimir Putin is responsible for heinous war crimes. There must be accountability. Canada will support Ukraine as you seek justice for your people who Russia is killing and brutalizing. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau making a surprise visit to Ukraine yesterday, where he met with President Volodymyr Zelensky today, Victory Day, and Russians are celebrating in a very different way. Our guest to chat about what is happening in Ukraine is Stephen Sademan. He holds the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and is the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network, also the author of the book For Kin or Countries in a phobia, nationalism, and war. Mr. Sabin, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, Vladimir Putin's rhetoric about uh, how the Western world is against Russia was dialed up today at a parade to uh, mark Victory Day. Now the question is, will the Russian military turn up the heat in Ukraine? And if so, how? Well, that's the really good question right now is that there was a lot of anticipation that Putin would do something dramatic, that he might call for mobilization of the entire uh, reserves, uh, expand the draft, do more to be able to send more people, if not more equipment, to the front. But sounds like his speech wasn't really all that substantive. It didn't really change what he was doing. So I think what the Ukrainians are facing is what they've been facing for the past two months, which is a poorly prepared, poorly led, demoralized Russian military that is still large enough to cause a lot of damage, but is probably not going to achieve any of its objectives that it set out two months ago or even more the ones that have been realigned lately. For his part, uh, President Zelensky has released a video address to uh, his nation today promising that Ukraine will soon have two victory days. What do you think will Ukraine consider a victory in this conflict? Well, I think they could already declare victory in the sense that they were able to uh, protect their national capital. They were able to deny the Russians their objectives. But the big question is, what are they willing to negotiate for? Will they accept Russian uh, annexation of Crimea? Will they accept a continuing Russian presence in the Donbass region? I think given the atrocities that the Russians have committed, it'll be very hard for Zelensky to get any kind of peace deal that gives up a fair amount of Ukrainian territory through any kind of referenda. Remember that most of the things that, that Putin was demanding would require a public vote and the public in Ukraine is justifiably angry and is not all that willing to give up that much territory or sovereignty in exchange for peace at this point in time. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Stephen Sademan. He holds the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs and is the Director of the Canadian Defence and Security Network. Uh, we saw Prime Minister Justin Trudeau make a surprise visit to Ukraine yesterday. A, a show of solidarity, uh, maybe a commitment for new military support. We heard that yesterday, as well as more sanctions against Russia. PM's visit was certainly a timely one, wasn't it? 
Well, anytime is a timely one, but I, I to have it the day before May 9th, this this anniversary of the end of World War II in Europe, uh, that that Jill Biden and you two were both in town at the same time. That is the rock band with Bono. They sang in a, uh, in a metro station. I think it shows a uh, united front across both the United States and Canada, but also uh, across, uh, with Europe and with a pop, the public sphere that is U2. I think that was really well-timed. I, I don't know how, if it was really planned uh, to coincide, uh, but there have been a lot of complaints that he hadn't been there yet. Uh, I'm a skeptic about this stuff. I think that if it makes sense to the Ukrainians for us to show up, we should, but they're the ones who are very busy fighting the war. Um, but the Ukrainians did get more Canadian aid, uh, military and financial. We can't forget that in the long run, it, the Ukrainians are going to need a lot of help rebuilding their country. Absolutely. Trudeau's visit also coincided with the reopening of the Canadian embassy in Ukraine. How significant is this development? I think it's important. It's showing that, in essence, the Russians have lost the major battles of the war because you, Kiev is mostly safe for the diplomatic community to return. We're not the first and we will be the last to do so. Uh, it's still dangerous to be sure that there are still airstrikes and missile strikes on Kiev, but the conventional threat of tanks showing up in, in Kiev any day now, that, that's gone. And so it's showing that the world, at least the Western world, is behind uh, Ukraine. We have to keep in mind the world is not united in this. Uh, there are a lot of countries that are sitting this one out. Uh, they would rather have this thing end, uh, and they're willing to blame both sides. But uh, it shows the United, uh, the United States, Canada, Europe, Japan, Australia, uh, South Korea, they're all on the same page that this is Russia's aggression that needs to be countered. When do you think this is all going to come to an end? Because, you know, my thought is even after this war, Russia is going to pay a dear price uh, financially and economically uh, from the rest of the world, at least those who are supporting Ukraine. Well, that's the big question. And we can't really say because also the war itself won't end until there both sides get exhausted so that there's some some kind of uh, agreement that is better than what they're facing. And it requires both of them, or at least either one of them to admit defeat or both of them to realize that more fighting is not going to get them anything. And I think right now the Russians still think that they have a chance to expand their holdings in, in, in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians certainly believe they have the ability to evict the Russians from the territory they, they're currently occupying. Maybe not out of Crimea, uh, maybe not out of all of the Donbass, but certainly out of the territories that were gained uh, two months ago. So it's going to take quite a while. And it, the the Ukrainians are getting rearmed from the West. The, the Russians are losing their military capability, but they've got plenty to, to bring to the front. So when is this thing going to end? Uh, it's really, really hard to tell. And it really depends on domestic politics within Russia more than anything else. And that's something that we really don't have a good clue about. Fantastic conversation. As always, Mr. Sadman, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. That is Stephen Sabin. He holds the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. And check out his book, For Kin or Country, Xenophobia, Nationalism, and War. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. About a week into the Ontario election campaign, which parties and candidates are resonating with you? Today marks the start of the first full week of the campaign. So who is impressing? Peter Grafe is a political science professor and an impressive one at that at McMaster University and joins us now here on GMH. Peter, good morning. How are you? 
Great, thanks. Uh, recent polls have shown that uh, PC leader Doug Ford is well on his way to re-election and, and may also win a majority government. We're in a pandemic. Many high-profile conservatives like Health Minister Christine Elliott are not running in this election. How has Ford been able to do it? Well, I mean, I guess first is, you know, Ontarians don't watch their politics that closely. So even Christine Elliott is probably not someone who's known to the majority of Ontarians or, you know, at least a large percentage of them. So, you know, what are Ontarians uh, looking at? I think, you know, part of it, they, they've had two years of uh, seeing Doug Ford uh, in, in front of the cameras as a premier of Ontario dealing with the pandemic. And, uh, you know, about two in five uh, Ontarians feel that he's, you know, done a, a very good job of that. Uh, you know, in addition, you have uh, the economy which is being to fire on all cylinders with relatively low rates of unemployment, although with also kind of lower rates of, of people in the labor market than before the, the recession, uh, sorry, before the pandemic. But again, when the economy is going well, that gives a bump uh, to the sitting government. So, you know, I think this explains why, you know, the Conservatives who probably have a base of about 30% of the Canadi- uh, of the Ontarian population, you know, are up at about, say, 37% in the polls, have been able to capture some people who are pleased with Doug Ford's uh, management of the, the pandemic. The economy is going well. And I guess the third thing is there's a bunch of people who like Doug Ford, even if they aren't necessarily Conservatives. And that's also adding to the numbers in the Conservative column. Is part of the problem, too, at least for the Liberals and the NDP, is that they're splitting the vote on the left? Yeah, I mean, obviously in our electoral system, right, we talk about, you know, Doug Ford on his way to, to win the election. And he's again, he's sitting at fewer than two votes in, in a five. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, and if he only loses a couple of percentage points from where he's at, uh, you know, he'll have a very similar performance to uh, what we saw uh, Aaron O'Toole have federally in Ontario in the last election, which was, you know, deemed to be a, a disaster. And again, part of that is that in that last election, a lot of the vote uh, moved towards the Liberals. So, yeah, if either the Liberals or the NDP managed to, to federate the non-Conservative vote and steal a few votes from the Conservatives, this will be a very different election in uh, three weeks' time. Peter Grafe is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, political science professor at McMaster University. We're chatting about the Ontario election campaign. If the polls are correct, the NDP and the Liberals are certainly fighting for second. Does either one have an edge? Uh, well, I mean, I think they've got different uh, strengths, and so we'll see which comes to the fore. Uh, you know, at the level of brand identity, of, you know, what people think they are, if you ask them, you know, who do they support in politics, the Liberals have a much stronger brand than the NDP. On the other hand, the NDP is better organized and has more money going into this campaign. And, you know, some of the polling has been looking at what issues people are trusting the parties most with. And, uh, you know, in the past, Liberals and the NDP, you know, shared a bunch of sort of core left or social policy areas, you know, this time the NDP holds most of those. The, the only issue area across all of them that uh, the Liberals are at first is in education, which maybe explains why we saw so many announcements last week about education from the Liberals, whether it was about class sizes or bringing back uh, grade 13 temporarily or the like. I think they're trying to make education into an issue because they realize if we get into health care, uh, you know, or, or other questions, uh, the NDP or the Conservatives will be running more strongly than they are. One of the more interesting angles in this election campaign is the reintroduction of Stephen Del Duca, this time not as a cabinet minister in the Wynn government, but as the leader of the party. Has he done a good job of reintroducing himself to voters? Well, I mean, I think he caught voters' attention with a sort of a, a bold announcement 
announcement of you know a dollar ride transit. Uh, you know whether that was a positive or a negative in terms of people's impression. They certainly uh, you put them in front of the cameras. Um, you know, otherwise it's been pretty low profile. But on the other hand, neither the Conservatives nor the NDP have been particularly effective in their, their targeting of him. So, uh, you know, it's surprising it's taking them so long to put him in, in front of uh, Ontarians. I'm not sure he's really caught fire. And that will be, I think, the danger for the Liberals. Again, if you have that, you know, 50 or 60 percent of the, of the population that's looking for either the NDP or the Liberals to beat the Conservatives, if he doesn't catch fire... Uh, that's an opening for Andrea Horvath. We have a couple more minutes with Peter Grave, political science professor at McMaster University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Um, we're hearing that the Liberals are going to unveil their full campaign platform today. Now, if my memory serves me, in the past, parties usually unveiled their full platforms either just before the election or like in, in the first day or two of the campaign. Why has that changed? Yeah, I, I think actually the, the practice has been pretty variable. I mean, you know, we've had uh, parties like the Conservatives in 1995 doing it months ahead. You know, we've also had parties into the sort of second or third week of the campaign where they've been, you know, it's been called a Gainsburger campaign where they sort of would trot out one promise a day and then after two or three weeks say, well, here's, you know, the actual platform. So I don't think this is, you know, entirely off base. Uh, I mean, I do think what we we see is, a, you know, a Liberal Party that probably didn't have the capacity to do a lot of the costing of the platform, and they waited for the Ontario budget as a kind of a starting point to say, okay, this is you know where the the fiscal situation is at, and so here's how we can do the costing of our budget. They, they probably needed that amount of time to really put the pieces together. But I guess the other thing is we had the Ontario budget, which is you know essentially the Conservative platform come out only about eight to ten days ago, and you, you don't want to be necessarily caught in the shadow of that or the shadow of the start of the campaign. You know, here's a way a week in where you can, you know, uh, presumably steal a day of coverage because it's a day that your uh, man, uh, your manifesto or your program comes out. Well, it's been a uh, somewhat interesting campaign. I wouldn't say it's electric, but there have been some highlights here or there. Peter, appreciate your insight into this. Enjoy the rest of your day. And you too. That's Peter Grafe, political science professor at McMaster University, breaking down the early days of the Ontario election campaign. Of course, voting day is June the 2nd. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The hashtag make kids count. Let's make that trend on uh, Twitter and your favorite social media platform. That's because the Children's Health Coalition is calling on political leaders to make kids' health a priority. And using that hashtag will, uh, I think, uh, maybe convince politicians to actually do that. Bruce Squires is the president of McMaster Children's Hospital and vice president of Women's and Children's Health at Hamilton Health Sciences and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Bruce. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Uh, what What is the 100-day hashtag Make Kids Count commitment? Well, this commitment really is about government um, addressing the fact that the children and youth, the kids of Ontario, have taken the brunt of, uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic. We've really asked too much of children. They found their health care delayed, uh, the vital health care that's been delayed. They faced, you know, incredible learning losses, and really all of this amounts to, to significant, sometimes devastating impacts on their development, their physical and mental health, um, and uh, their long-term well-being. And so as a result, the Children's Healthcare Coalition, which is Ontario's children's hospitals, including Master Children's, 
all of the uh, mental health agencies, community-based mental health agencies in the province, and the children's treatment centers who provide child development and rehabilitation services. That's us coming together and calling on really all candidates and the party leaders to commit to a $1 billion investment in children's health care over the next uh, four years. And in line with that, we would look for uh, the next government to uh, commit to a 100-day action plan, which would include bringing together, um, you know, everyone interested in, in children's health to, uh, to develop uh, a long-term plan for sustainable and quality health care for, for children that, as I said, starts with a, uh, a $1 billion investment over four years. The timing is perfect, obviously, with the provincial election campaign underway. Have you seen or heard any movement from any of the political parties on this call? Well, we know that uh, that we're early on in the election campaign, and so we've had an opportunity to uh, to share this plan with all of the political parties. Uh, we know that we have seen some investments in in children's health care, some one-time investments over the past year. But uh, you know, the time is now for all of us to really speak out to government uh, to point out that uh, that our children and youth are the future um, and uh, we need to have a, a a good dialogue recognizing the impact of of uh, of of the pandemic on all of our young people and decide to, to address that you know coming into the pandemic it's we already had challenges with uh, with the provision of care, with access to care for, for children and youth. In many cases, they were already waiting too long for vital surgeries, for developmental services, for mental health care, but it just got so much worse during the pandemic. And, and so, um, you know, the time is now for us to uh, to make children a priority going forward. And so we're really hopeful that, uh, that not only will the public, uh, you know, parents, uh, families, uh, the community who are experiencing this, seeing this with their kids, really are affected by the pandemic. We're hoping that we'll not only see them call for, uh, uh, for, for more of a priority, but that that will lead to more dialogue and ultimately commitment by each of the parties. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Bruce Squires, President of McMaster Children's Hospital and Vice President, Women's and Children's Health at Hamilton Health Sciences. We're talking about the hashtag Make Kids Count commitment. We don't normally picture a child when we think about surgical delays. We think of someone in their older years, but they're impacted as well. Yeah, that's that's right, Rick. And, and you know, many will be surprised by the fact that across the province, in fact, kids are more likely to wait too long for their surgery. We've got over 16,000 children on surgical wait lists across Ontario, and 56% of those are actually waiting longer than is clinically recommended for their particular surgery. And those delays, you know, they're, they're, they're not mild. They're not often life-threatening, thank goodness, but they can have a significant impact on the child in the moment and on their long-term health and, and, uh, and well-being. So let me give you some examples. So children are waiting for uh, surgery to correct the curvature of their spine. Often with young children, they may have displaced hips. Those need to be corrected. Children born with congenital birth de- defects, um, which if not corrected, uh, can lead to a lifetime challenge of infertility. Children with cleft palates, 
children with early infant hearing loss. And so the, the issue of a child waiting too long is not, it's not often, oh, they may die on the wait list, but if they don't receive the surgery within the appropriate time period, that, of course, in the moment means pain, sometimes suffering. It can affect their ability to function, to participate in activities of, of, of regular life. But for a child, that's about going to school. That's about playing sports. That's about being able to interact with their, with their friends. And, you know, that in itself is tragic. Every day in the life of a child matters. But in addition, if they have to wait too long for some of these surgeries, then they can see a worsening of their future prognosis, their future ability, for example, to function. Um, they may experience greater likelihood of reduced mo- mobility going forward in the case of, say, a curvature of the spine. It can lead to future health issues. So for all these reasons, you don't want any child to wait too long to receive a surgery. And amazingly, across this province, more kids are waiting beyond those recommended times than adults. That is too bad. We encourage all our listeners to use the hashtag MakeKidsCount, and uh, let's put some pressure on our political leaders to make that commitment. Bruce, really appreciate you waking up with us this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day. Well, thank you so much, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The virtual Salvation Army Hope Run is ongoing this month. This, this is a big event for the Salvation Army. When you talk about people who need food, housing, and everything in between, the Salvation Army is there. And they're there again with this vital fundraising initiative called the Hope Run. Deanna Finch-Smith is the Executive Director of Salvation Army Lawson Ministries. And Michaela Raymond is the Social Media Specialist with the Salvation Army Ontario Division. And each of them join us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Deanna and Michaela. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? Not too bad. Michaela, we'll start with you. Tell us about uh, the Hope Run. Yeah, so first we just would like to thank Chorus for partnering with us this year as our official media sponsor. We're really grateful for this partnership. We're excited to see where it's going to take us. Um, So the Salvation Army's Virtual Hope Run is going to be running this month from May 1st to 31st. And it is an opportunity for individuals or groups uh, to raise funds or donate to the local Salvation Army programs and services of their choice across Ontario. Um, And that will help address homelessness, food insecurity, and mental health or unemployment. Um, For example, an individual or group can run or walk and support the Hamilton Booth Center, which is an an emergency, emergency shelter, or Lawson Ministries, which supports individuals with developmental disabilities, um, or even Grace Haven, uh, which is a location that helps young parents build a bright future for themselves and their child. And all of these Salvation Army programs are offered right here in Hamilton. Very cool. Deanna, this is a virtual event, as I mentioned, so really participants can participate at any time during this month. Yes. So how can people join? Um, so you're going to go to, if you're feeling like joining our awesome runner walk virtually, you're going to go to salvationarmy.ca slash Hope Run Ontario. And their participants will be able to select the program that they would like to donate to or raise funds for. And they can choose either a five kilometer runner walk, a 10 kilometer runner walk, or a half marathon. Um, and there's also a one kilometer kids option as well for our younger participants. 
Uh, once again, that is salvationarmy.ca slash Hope Run Ontario. Now, this being a fundraiser, there's always a fundraising goal that goes along with it. What is that goal? And so our goal is to provide hope to as many vulnerable individuals and families as we possibly can across the province. As we know, the cost of living is increasing from housing to food and families are really struggling right now. Um, so with your support and participation in our second Virtual Hope Run Ontario, we'll be able to reach those in need. It's really any goal we can reach that we're trying for right now. Let's bring Deanna Finch-Smith into the conversation, Executive Director of the Salvation Army Lawson Ministries. Deanna, how excited are you to have this fundraiser ongoing again? Good morning. We are really excited at Lawson. Um, the clients that we support, which are adults from 18, to um, end of life um, with developmental disabilities are pumped up and gathering some groups together along with their staff and families to participate in this very exciting event. It's been a uh, really challenging two plus years as we all know. Deanna, is the Salvation Army as busy now as it was before or even during the pandemic? Absolutely. Um, Even though our services have decreased with some closures or postponements of programs, the services have certainly increases on on site at our residential programs, um, increasing um, home opportunities and um, um, Zoom opportunities for day programs. So um, we're always looking for staff as well. If anybody's interested in working in this amazing field, they can uh, visit the Salvation Army Lawson Ministries website and certainly come on board um, to uh, join our wonderful team. Deanna, what kind of people do you need in terms of um, uh, restocking the employment shelves, if if you will? Yes, so we're looking um, for DSWs, which are developmental service workers, or um, equivalent education with a, a secondary, a post-secondary education. Um, so people who are um, definitely caring and loving and ready to have fun and uh, certainly enrich their lives by coming on board um, and enriching our guys' lives. Let's bring uh, Michaela back into the conversation. Michaela Raymond, social media specialist with the Salvation Army Ontario Division. Uh, as we mentioned, this is virtual again. How close was the Salvation Army to holding this as an in-person event? sure how close we were because this virtual event was created directly in response to um, the events of COVID last year. So this is our second uh, run. Last year was the first one and we were still right in the midst of the pandemic. We really wanted to create an event that united the entire province of Ontario. As you know, it's geographically massive. Um, So in the only way we could really do that was to go virtual because the Salvation Army has programs all the way from Thunder Bay to Wyerton to Windsor. Um, So going virtual and staying virtual is really the only way we can unite the entire province so well. And having a month-long virtual run really gets many people involved on many different days. We wish you both nothing but the best and good luck with the Hope Run this year. Deanna Finch-Smith and Michaela Raymond, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having us. Deanna is the Executive Director of Salvation Army Lawson Ministries. Michaela, Social Media Specialist with Salvation Army Ontario Division. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast from 900 CHML. Is cash dead? Well, no. And it couldn't be further from the truth. A new report from RBC Economics says that despite the acceleration of digital currency... 
The demand for cash is high. Josh Nye is a senior economist and author of this report with RBC Economics and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, thanks for coming on. This uh, report says that demand for cash is now at its highest level in 60 years. How did this happen? Yeah, so, I mean, we saw a real spike in, in demand for cash during the pandemic. Um, that's not unusual um, in if we look back to, to past crises, say, um, you know, Y2K, we saw a real um, increase in demand for cash uh, ahead of that during the global financial crisis as well. People flocked into cash perhaps because there were concerns about the health of the banking system. And then you saw that again um, during the pandemic. I think you had a combination of perhaps people being worried about their ability to access cash uh, because of health restrictions, and then also just concerns about the economic backdrop and, and how quickly the economy um, was contracting. So even as we've continued to see a move away from cash as a method of payment, we've seen an increase in demand for cash as what we call a store of value. There's a lot of political uncertainty as well. We had a federal election last year. The war in Ukraine has broke out. Are those also factors? Yeah, I, th- I think that could be um, driving some ongoing demand for cash. I think also, you know, prior to, to um, where we are right now, we had a pretty long period of, of low interest rates and low inflation. Low interest rates mean the alternatives to cash aren't all that attractive. Um, low inflation means that uh, the value of cash isn't being eroded quite so quickly. So, you know, I think those were factors as well. I mean, it's been a, a, a decade of, of increase in demand for cash um, that was really just exacerbated by the pandemic. I think some of those things you mentioned could be feeding into that as well. It'll be interesting to see now with inflation so high. I mean, you just mentioned how high gas prices are. Um, you know, maybe that sees people shying away from cash a bit because cash does lose value when inflation is high. Talking about the demand for cash being at a uh, really high level throughout the pandemic with our guest Josh Nye, senior economist and the author of this report from RBC Economics. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Is the demand for cash only elevated here in Canada or are residents of other countries uh, flocking to their ATMs and to their banks? Yeah, you saw it in, in many other countries. It was really, um, you know, only a few exceptions that didn't see an increase in cash. And those are sort of the more cashless um, societies like Sweden. Um, Canada was actually on, on the sort of lower end in terms of the rise in, in demand for cash. So it, it really was um, a global phenomenon. In light of this report, has the pandemic decelerated the desire for a digital currency? I think there's, there's, you know, ongoing interest being expressed in, in digital currencies, whether you're talking about um, a central bank digital currency, which would be a digital form of cash, or, um, you know, things like cryptocurrency. Um, it's interesting to see the, the rise in demand for cash alongside um, that interest in, in crypto. Um, they seem sort of like polar opposites in, in some sense. Um, you know, crypto, there's a lot of interest in, in that because of decentralization. You know, you can't have... Um, the government printing more money, something like Bitcoin. There's only a fixed amount that's ever going to be minted. I think what you see here, though, is that people actually um, value that centralization. They value the safety and security that comes from government backing, and, and that's part of the reason we've seen more demand for cash. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Josh Nye, Senior Economist with RBC Economics and an author of the report that shows that despite the acceleration of digital currency, the demand for cash is high. We know that central banks are looking into um, designing their own digital currencies. How close or how far away are we from that reality here in this country? 
Um, certainly, there, there's work being done on that um, by the Bank of Canada and by other central banks globally. I, I think a few other central banks are a bit further along than we are. Um, I think the, the government and the central bank are still evaluating whether they want to launch a central bank digital currency. Um, I think you know, seeing the continued move away from cash in terms of a method of payment, um, you know, I think that's where the real interest is um, in how, how the government can continue to provide a sort of public payment option, one where you don't need a bank uh, account or a credit or a debit card or a cell phone um, to make payments. So I think that's where, um, you know, the interest is, is going to be. This report also looks at the country's ATM network and suggests that it's probably a good idea to streamline it. How would that be done and what would the benefits be? Yeah, so Canada has um, one of the world's largest ATM networks on a per capita basis. Um, that is, is really a reflection of our low population density. You need more ATMs to serve, um, you know, the same number of people. Um, we've seen, though, you know, given the, the increase in demand for cash, more as a store of value than um, in transactions. You know, that probably means people are doing fewer transactions, perhaps larger transactions. And so we've seen the number of, of um, transactions at ATMs decline in the past number of years, and it's fallen faster than the ATM network um, is shrinking. And so there's you know, perhaps some potential there um, to streamline the ATM network. I think, though, you have to balance that against Um, wanting to continue to provide access to cash for the people who use it most. It's a pretty interesting report. Josh, thanks for uh, sharing some details with us. Yeah, thank you very much. And I just encourage people to to check it out on our website, rbc.com slash economics. Great stuff. Josh Nye, thanks for the time. Enjoy the day. Thank you. You too. That is Josh Nye, Senior Economist at RBC Economics and the author of the report that shows that despite the acceleration of digital currency, we're seeing commercials and advertisements for stuff like Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies. Um, The demand for cash is at an all-time high, or at least the highest level in 60 years. Cash withdrawals rose sharply early in the pandemic, and uh, notes or or dollar bills in circulation jumped by twice as much as would have been expected in 2020 and remained elevated through 2021. Pretty interesting. As crises occur... We go to the ATM and to the bank to take out cash. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. An apocalypse preparation school has started in Alberta, of all places, that teaches survival skills just in case we encounter a worst possible scenario. Whatever that scenario could be. You'd be ready if you enrolled in the Apocalypse Preparedness and Survival School. And the founder of that school joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Greg Gorecki is his name. Greg, good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. How did this school come about? Uh, well, actually, it's uh, supposed to be a, a weekend fun business for me. Um, the school came about, uh, the idea came out a couple uh, years ago. And uh, I retired from being a paramedic. I retired from being in the military. And I had some pretty interesting skills, and I love to educate. So I thought it'd be a good idea to create a business out of it. And, you know, I love empowering people to make good decisions. And, yeah, that's about it. That's a great idea. What's the response been like? Uh, it's been uh, not too bad. A lot of interest and, uh, you know, a lot of questions as to the curriculum and things like that. So, uh you know, uh, there is interest out there and it's it's growing. What do students learn when they're in the school? 
Well, we start off with, uh, it's a one day in class and one day in the field. Uh, it's an eight to five course. And uh, we teach everything from uh, equipment, like, you know, what to have in the go bag, where to go in case of emergency, things like that. Uh, we go into uh, map compass and GPS navigation, uh, some life, life-saving uh, field trauma first aid and uh, some chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear survival. We uh, do an introduction to that. So apart from, uh, you know, the, the end of the world or end times, this would be, I'm, I'm guessing, quite valuable for campers and hikers as well. I think so. I mean, the, the chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear survival is something new to everybody. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, the likeliness is low, but, uh, you know, it is possible. But as far as hiking and traveling and things like that, the first aid portion, which does uh, really, uh, we teach uh, life-saving skills. And uh, the map compass and GPS navigation, as, as well as the bushcraft. So shelters, fires, signals, and, and things like that. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Greg Gorecki, founder of the Apocalypse Preparedness and Survival School. And we're talking about the school here on the show. Are there tests at the end of the two-day uh, expedition? Not really. It's a challenge yourself. And, you know, what you put into it is what you get out of it type of uh, program. It's none of the skills are mandatory. Uh, none of the, part, the participation isn't mandatory. But I mean, it's uh, like I said, you, you get out of it what you put into it and you get a pretty uh, sweet badge at the end. <laughs> What's the cost to yeah. attend and how can people enroll? Uh, it's 280 bucks for uh, a weekend per person. And you can enroll by just going to our uh, homepage, uh, Apocalypse Prep. That's P-R-E-P dot C-A. And are there any plans to offer this outside of where you are? And, and can people enroll virtually? Right now, it's hard to find uh, uh, people with the skills that uh, myself and my employees possess. Uh, it's... Uh, yeah, if I can find similar uh, interest and similar skilled people, then uh, I'd be more than happy to offer this course uh, outside of uh, Edmonton, even Alberta. And uh, we, we do not have a virtual uh, presence uh, at this time. What is the, uh, the the big response from those who you know take part in this two-day session? What really gets their attention the most? I think it's uh, the skills, you know. We do offer skills that really you don't find anywhere else unless you're, you know, an, an advanced care paramedic or you've been in the military and, you know, you've, you've gone through the CBRN training um, and the map and compass training. So, yeah, I mean... Well, it, it's a pretty neat uh, idea. I'm, I'm not sure how close we are to an apocalypse, but as you said, it could happen in any day. Who knows? Greg, appreciate your time today. Best of luck with this school going forward. My pleasure. That is Greg Recchi. He's the founder of the Apocalypse Preparedness and Survival School. Some of the things that you will learn about include uh, first aid, a fire starting without matches or lighters, which could come in handy if you get lost in the woods, compass operation and navigation. If you suffer a serious wound, you'll be able to do that. Shelter building and even how to protect yourself from airborne chemicals 
or radiation. Sounds like a ton of fun. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.